Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and Radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game Podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks, let's start off with an ode to Luis Scola. More recent Nets fans might not remember the big man who was on his last legs in the NBA when he played for Brooklyn back in 2016-17. But, you know, he certainly proved to be a prophet. For on his way out of that debacle of a net season, he said of the franchise, once they win, they'll get everyone they want. Back then, you know, many people took it as your typical don't-burn-your-bridges remark, not something to be taken seriously. Well... Just a couple of years later, Nets, you know, after working their way back into the playoffs with that team we all loved, somehow that proved to be just enough of a spark to entice Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to join forces in Brooklyn for the following campaign. Then this season, when Katie showed he was close enough back to his old elite self, you know, prior to his Achilles tear, James Harden engineered his way out of Houston, forming the new big three with KD and Kyrie. And now, Blake Griffin, an NBA All-Star just two years ago, he receives his buyout from Detroit, and he actually chose the Nets over at least four other title contenders, if you believe what he told Rich Eisen. In this show, I'll get into what this all means as the Nets get set to start the second half of their season, with a nationally televised home tilt versus Boston on Thursday. And I'll also muse about what could be coming next. And to help me with all that, I'm so pleased that Alex Schiffer of The Athletic will be returning to the program. So welcome back from the All-Star break, folks. We're all about to go on a stretch run unlike anything we've seen since the old Dr. J days. And this team is actually favored to win a championship. 
So I hope you'll find this show enjoyable. If you do, I ask that you please subscribe to this podcast when you can on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever platform you're using right now. And feel free to let me know what you think in the Apple Podcast review section. Now, let's start talking about Griffin. You know, of course, he's looked like a shell of the player he was before his recent knee troubles. His shooting numbers are just awful. 36.5% from the floor and 31.5% from deep. Worse. He hasn't exhibited anywhere near the level of athleticism that once made him a nightly highlight reel unto himself. Famously, he hasn't dunked since 2019. Oh, and that 36.5% figure? That's the second worst rate in the league among players with at least 200 shot attempts. So you ask, why am I excited about the Nets adding Blake? Well, besides the fact that I've wanted Sean Marks to secure his services since the offseason, you know, they didn't even need to trade for him. They got him for nothing, on a buyout, and a minimum salary, no less. So, you know, remember, like in that scene in the movie Moneyball, where Billy Bean confronted David Justice in the batting cages? They're not paying Griffin for the player he used to be. They're paying him for the player he is now. And I firmly believe this player has more left in the tank. You know, Zach Lowe on ESPN, by the way, he was the reporter who elicited the Louis Scola quote at the top of the show. Anyway, you know, Zach Lowe was on the jump after the announcement about Griffin, and he noted that Griffin could thrive like Jeff Green has thrived here. You know, with all the open space, the time to set his feet and check the wind before shooting. You know, with the way James Harden creates for others, Griffin will be seeing opportunities unlike anything that he saw when he used to be the focal point of offenses. It wouldn't shock me if he got that dunk out of the way in the first half on Thursday. And then there's Griffin's underrated passing. I'll be talking more about that with Alex Schiffer in a few moments, but you know, many experts think Griffin's playmaking, you know, for a second unit, will fit perfectly in this offense. That'll actually be the area where he helps the Nets the most. The open question, of course, is the other end, you know, his defense. Was he giving full effort in Detroit, or is his mobility so shot that he can't guard a chair? Well, one thing that consensus seems to agree on is that he's a terrific communicator on D. That's very important in the net schemes with all the switching they do, one through five. As for the rest, you know, we'll have to see whether the prospect of playing games that matter, you know, puts more spring in Griffin's shoes. Which brings me to how the Nets plan to use him. I saw the tweet where Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN had the Nets envisioning Griffin as a small ball five off the bench. Um, why? Why does this team always feel like small is better? If Griffin can get his three-point percentage up to where he has to be guarded on the perimeter, why can't the Nets use him as a forward? From the early looks of things, it sure seems like Nick Claxton can handle backup five minutes or Green when he returns from his shoulder injury. You know, many of the Nets' most earnest rivals are big teams. Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Toronto. Not to mention a possible Lakers matchup in the finals. You mean to tell me that the Nets are willing to sacrifice Claxton minutes so they can play Timothy Luawo Cabarro more? Don't get me started again. 
Well, I want to hear what my special guest this week has to say about this, so I think this is a good time to give you folks the clip of my interview with Alex Schiffer of The Athletic. Folks, for my special guest this week, I am so grateful to be able to bring back to the podcast the terrific young writer who covers the Nets for The Athletic, Mr. Alex Schiffer is with me on Zoom. Alex, thanks so much for giving me some time today. You know, with this team, you're always pretty busy, right? Yeah, I don't, the the word break has been taken out of All Star Break for me this year with the Blake Griffin stuff. So it's uh, always a pleasure, Steve. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we have a bit of a calmer second half before the playoffs start, if possible. I don't know about that, but I guess uh, we should obviously start, start off by talking about Griffin because uh, your most recent article was basically focused on Griffin's passing, and yeah, I agree that's certainly an underrated aspect of his game. Uh, you broke down film of some of his assists. Folks, you should go on theathletic.com. It's a pay subscription site, and I'm telling you it's worth it. But you know, I, I was curious if you had access to the other side of the coin, you know, turnovers or bad shot decisions. So my question is, how much do you think he has left in the tank, and how much of a difference maker do you see him being? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I, before I did that story, I consulted with our Pistons writer, James Edwards, who I think does a terrific job covering the team. And he thought that the playmaking was, was Blake's biggest asset going into Brooklyn, for sure. I, you know, he's had multiple surgeries on the knee, obviously. And, you know, it, depends, it seems like in Detroit, his play kind of depends upon who you ask in terms of the situation there and, um, and the talent around him. And kind of the effect that had on its mindset. Some some say he was a bit checked out. Others say, you know, the situation got to him a bit. But um, I, you know, obviously he's on a veteran minimum deal, and they're not asking him to carry the team in any capacity. He's more of a luxury than a necessity. So I, I think his playmaking and and some of his rebounding is is probably his best traits left. More so on the playmaking. But again, they're not asking him to be the Blake Griffin that was the number one pick. Um. In 2009, I want to say it was. They're asking to be more of a, of a guy that has a Jeff Green type role on this team. So, I, uh, I, I, he's not what he used to be, but I do think that he's he's not bad for that second unit as a more of a veteran guy. Now it's interesting you mentioned Jeff Green because I guess it was Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski, who tweeted that the Nets plan to they 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 see him as a small ball five. So you know, my when I was talking before, I was like, why? I mean, why can't he be a four? I mean, the, you're, you're, when you're playing Philadelphia and you're playing, you know, some of these big teams, Milwaukee, you could use him as a four. And I know you told you told me uh, I'll let you uh, plug it. You got an article on Nick Claxton coming out. Why why take away his minutes right now when he's starting to look really fresh? I I agree on all that. You know, the other thing is is that. And Jeff Green's been serviceable in that small uh, role they've used him for at the, at the five spot. But Blake Griffin's never been a rim protector in his career that I can ever remember. Even with all of his athleticism early in his career, you know, he, he's never really averaged. Uh, I don't even think he averages a block per game for his career. It's, it's under that. So I, I thought that was a weird thing. You know, I, I even touched on this in the story. You know, his three-point shooting tailed off in Detroit, but you know, you look at a lineup where he's hypothetically playing with Joe Harris in the big three. I think a defense might try to have a set Blake Griffin up to have a three. And if it goes in, so be it. And, and if it's death by Blake Griffin threes, that that might be the best option just based on the way that you'd have to guard the rest of the team. So 
as you you know you touched on Claxton, I mean they, they've he's played 20 games in 20 months. You know this is a story I actually started reporting in December 2019 when I went to Tom Crean's office in Georgia and his parents' house in, in South Carolina when the Nets were down there. And, and he he can switch on defense. He's a stretch five. He's a different look with, than what they have with DeAndre Jordan out there. I, I say kind of ride the hot hand with this team. I mean, you know, it's worked with Tyler Johnson. It's worked with Landry Shamit. Like, I, I just think if, you have, if you're getting good contributions from your bench, um, you know, go with it. Go with, go with those guys. Well, I guess that leads me to my next question. I'm talking with Alex Schiffer of The Athletic. You know, with all this talent, when fully healthy, you know, Steve Nash has some very difficult decisions to make. I mean, he, he's gotten tremendous production out of a guy like Bruce Brown, and we talked talked about Claxton, you know, coming into the picture. What's your ideal rotation for this Nets team? You know, you know, going against like the teams I say, Philadelphia, you know, in a conference finals. You know, it's funny. I um, I've spent a lot of time today thinking about that because. The, on, one, on one hand, you know, they've had so much attrition in the first half of the season. You know, is he even going to get a chance to really have a lineup, uh, a, a, a concise rotation going into the playoffs with the way guys have been so in and out? Well, the one thing I, I, mean, I, I, one thing I would say yeah. about that, sorry, one thing I would say about that is, you know, some of these games, you're overly cautious. If you're in the conference yes. finals, absolutely, you, you know, you, get, you, you have to have, you know, you have to be headed to sh- surgery you know, to sit out. I mean, they're not going to, there's not going to be any load management. If Kyrie's shoulder is, is not feeling so hot, you know, he's probably going to play through it. Whereas in a regular season game, he wouldn't. So that's why I always assume, you know, it's a, it's a conference finals. They're playing a big team like Philadelphia. Who are you playing? Yeah. I mean, obviously the big three, Joe and DJ are, are my starting five. I mean, they, they need, they need Jordan, obviously, against Embiid. I mean, that's probably his biggest role in the playoffs. I, I was, one of my friends told me today, he goes, DeAndre, if that happens, DeAndre Jordan's net center might be defined by, you know, his ability to do something with, with Joel Embiid um, in, a, in a playoff series. And, and I mean, the, the reserves are just so fascinating because, you know, I, I would go with a guy like Landry Shaman, who's got a lot more playoff experience than some of the other younger guys over maybe a Claxton or a TLC. As, as good as Clax has been, it's five games. And if we're talking the conference finals, you know, and, and my, my, what we know about this team as of, you know, March 9th, I, uh, I would say Shamit, Griffin, um, Bruce Brown. Um, and then those other two spots are, are, are fascinating. Obviously, Jeff Green. And that, that last spot to me is almost like a wild card of, you know, um, do you go with it? Go ahead. Michael, those guys are going to, they might play nine because, you know, Harden's playing like 40 minutes a night in the regular season. You know, yeah. they, they, you know, I don't see Shamit playing very large minutes. And certainly when you have Irving and Harden, you're not playing Shamit and Brown, right? Correct. I agree. I agree. And that's, to me, I, you know, I, I TLC is out to me as of right now of a, of a playoff rotation, just based on the roster today as isn't. You know, they have two open roster spots, Steve. We don't know what those are going to look like. And, and are those guys, you know, there's the rumor today, Allen Robinson, uh, Chicago Bears wide receiver turned NBA reporter, um, <laughs> saying that there's rumors of Andre Drummond going to Brooklyn. If that were to hypothetically happen to a guy of that caliber, uh, and obviously they've been linked to P.J. Tucker during the, uh, you know, in, in recent weeks. I mean, that's another guy out. I mean, so it's, as you said, you're stopping at nine. And, and I feel like that might 
that that can very well change too. I don't not the number, but just who's in it based on the way this has been going. Well, we can. I was going to save that question for for later, but since you brought it up, you know, you hear, you know, the tweet from uh, Robinson, or you read the tweet from Robinson about Drummond. You've you've heard the rumors about guys like PJ Tucker or JJ Redick. Have you? Has your reported reporting unveiled anything about some guys that that really want to come to Brooklyn? You know, it's funny. I I haven't heard a lot of smoke with him. I could very well be wrong in this podcast they just poorly for me. But you know, Blake Griffin, I'd heard two or three weeks ago he was coming to Brooklyn. I, I had that story we touched on today that ran Monday on um his playmaking ready to go a week or two ago because it, it seemed so destined. I got out in front of it. The PJ Tucker rumors were shortly before they went public. I had heard a lot on, um, but in turn, you know, the, the, the Nets have been linked a bit to John Collins through some people, but like I just don't think they have the capital to make that work. Um, you know, so I, he's a guy I haven't heard a ton on. And with, and with Drummond, I, I think his rebounding could help them. Obviously, offensive rebounding has been a bit of a weakness for them this year, but he just reminds me too much of DeAndre Jordan. To, to really make the acquisition worth it. You know, I, I was talking to Reggie Thias um, earlier today, and he said how the Nets need to avoid their roster having too many of the same thing. And I feel like Drummond kind of falls into that. JaVale McGee, I think, would be a different type of center than, than Drummond and DeAndre, and he would make a bit more sense to me. But And there's been smoke with him too, obviously, but I, I just don't think Drummond – I think he's just too similar to what they already have. What, what about you? Well, I don't have the reporting uh, sources that you have. No, I just mean the fit. I just mean, I mean the fit. Look, yeah. I, I'm looking for wing type players. I'm looking for guys who can guard Jimmy Butler, you know, in a first or second round. You know, yeah. Guy, so you're uh, in the PJ type camp, right? So yeah, uh, that, that's who I agree. That's who I would like to see them get, but I, I don't have any reporting to suggest that. You know, what would you think of a? You know, I once I said this last pod t- podcast. Dinwiddie for Tucker, that that would be a trade. Uh, I don't know if either team would do it. Would either side like that deal? It's interesting, right? I I think that right make the five years in and pay him. I wonder if there's a world in which Houston tries to. If that were to happen, if if Houston tries to send Dinwiddie elsewhere, it's a three-team deal to give him to a team that could afford the roster spot on an injured guy and and give him the money he wants. And, you know, maybe they liked him during the draft and they couldn't get him or, or you know, um, they've had a long infatuation with him. I, I think that it would be an interesting deal just because, I, you know, I've asked a ton of people this. I can't think of an instance where you see a guy of Dinwiddie's caliber get traded to a team – that he might never play for, you know, injured guys get traded all the time, obviously, but, but something like that would be pretty unique. I think you can make a case for it. I, I think you can make a case obviously against it, but I, I just think the question is what can Houston do with Dinwiddie? Do they like him long-term? Or is there a way for them to maybe flip him for something else to a team that would, that he would absolutely commit to long-term and they would be willing to put up with him, you know, as an injured rental for lack of a better phrase um, while he rehabs, or maybe he's able to come back later in the season. His, you know, I think you asked Steve Nash a couple weeks ago. I mean, his, his Instagram videos are extremely impressive with, with where he's at right now. Well, well, then the question is, is P.J. Tucker enough of a return to, you know, as for an asset of Dinwiddie's caliber, even with the injury, even with the pending free agent status? 
That's another that's another good question. I don't think that they could get a first round pick attached for that just because of all the unknowns, as you said. Brandon Houston's got a few of those to play with now between the the Harden trade and um and the uh the John Wall trade. But I, I don't it, it's fascinating. I, I don't I'm gonna lean no, but I you know, maybe a second round pick, but I don't I don't know if they could get more for that just based on all the unknowns, as you said. Okay. Uh, very interesting. I'm talking with uh, Alex Schiffer of The Athletic. Got a couple more from you. Uh, earlier I mentioned Steve Nash. And like when, we, when you were on with me earlier in the year, we both raised concerns about you know, entrusting a win-now team to a rookie coach you know, at any level, mind you. And I think the early going brought those concerns out you know, to the nth degree, at least in my view. Yes. I know Nash just won coach of the month and, you know, he said, even he said he was lucky enough to have James Harden play the way, you know, hard played all February. So he was going to get some votes no matter what, but, you know, given that, what's your take as to whether you see a danger ahead in the postseason? you know, when Nash will be matched up with experienced coaches in the conference, like Spolstra, Doc Rivers and the like, I, it's funny, you know, I, I was thinking about that earlier in the, in the week. If, if you were to say at the beginning of the year that De- Kevin Durant would miss all the time he has and the Nets would be second in the East going into the All-Star break, I think you'd say that, that all things considered based on expectations that, that Nash has done a decent job. I, I'm right there with you, the concerns. I mean, you, you've had the best tweets of the season on his timeout <laughs> management, which I, I think has gotten better. I mean, I don't think he's got it down to a science by any means, but I, I think it's gotten better. Well, he used um, to go home with yeah. timeouts in his pocket. He, yes. I mean, what's you know, you when when you have more than two, with until the two minute warning in the fourth quarter, you lose them. So you might, yeah. as, you know, you you have more timeouts than you think. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I believe you had the comparison to uh, what was it, a, a comb in a ball man's pocket or something like that. Um, your metaphor was great when you did it that night, but um. But no, I, his timeout management, and even I thought some of his rotations earlier in the year were puzzling just in that it, it seemed like, you know, he, he would sub a guy in and they would get hot, and then he would take them out for no real apparent reason. Um, his rotations, I thought, and, and again, you know, you could blame the attrition a little bit on that, but I, I thought his rotations were, were questionable at the beginning of the year. But, you know, again, like he, I, I wonder going into the playoffs, as you said, you know, I mean, you look at Doc Rivers, you look at Eric Spolster, guys that have been there before, have kind of coached in all those situations. I mean, how much is, is Steve Nash leading on his staff with that? You know, outside, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the year the staff he had around him, but Mike D'Antoni is the only one that's really has extensive playoff experience, especially as a head coach. Jacques Vaughn was going to the playoffs in Orlando. Um, you know, obviously they got swept by Toronto in the playoffs last year. So I, I do worry, and I do think it's a concern, you know, can he make the right um, decisions in crunch time while going against guys that have done it um, – have done it for a living. You know, it, it reminds me of March Madness where if you have a program, you know, you have a team built for a deep run, but do you have the coach that can handle the Tom Izzo's and the coach K's when you get into those deep rounds to get the most out of those teams, you know, that, so it, it, I think it's definitely a concern. So I think he's gotten better, but he still is not going to have any playoff experience and they're, and they're all in this year. So I, he, he's gotten better, but I don't think those concerns are off the table by any means. I agree with you, Alex. I got one more for you and, you know, folks, again, I'll remind you, The Athletic, great site, 
ton of wonderful reporters in all sports. I, 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 I'm, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the guy who wrote the piece on the Nets history talking about the Weston Dodd, my good friend. Yes. Yes. He wrote, that was a great article as well. Definitely worth your subscription fee uh, folks. So, you know, Alex fans just coming back into the NBA arenas. Do you foresee a situation where one team that, you know, that plays in like Miami, you know, will have a significant advantage in the playoffs because their state's governor has a more laissez-faire attitude toward the coronavirus than maybe New York's? I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. You know, I, I feel like I would put my money more on a fan or a, a, maybe an arena that has a reputation for, you know, a good game day atmosphere like Portland or, um, or Utah, you know, one of the tougher places to play in the NBA. But, I, I, you know, it's funny. I remember when this whole thing first started with the bubble, I remember someone talking about how free throw shooting might go up because you won't have fans trying to rile, um, rile opposing players on the free throw line. And I'm kind of curious to see what the numbers look like when that's all said and done as to if it was an, if there was a significant impact or not. I, I would lean toward no, just because I don't think we're going to be at full capacity arenas by then, or maybe even 75%. I feel like if they're even half, that says a lot about the progress we've made but as, as a nation. But I, I think it's definitely something to watch. But I um, – I'm not ready to go there yet until I start to really see the what the capacities are looking like for that that for the playoffs. What's it been like it's at Barclays? What's it What's it been like at Barclays Center with the fur with a few hundred? Are they noticeable with you in the press box? You know, I I've been trying to find figure that out, but the the Nets are still tuning in fan sound like they were doing with when the place was completely empty. So it's been tough to really gauge just how impactful they've been. Uh, it's why I'm curious when they get to, you know, the 1700 or so of that 10% capacity they're allowed right now, do they still use the, the auto, you know, the, do they still pump the sound in or do they finally give the fans, you know, their, their own chance to make some noise? <laughs> I, um, so I've been trying to figure out what 300 fans sound like at a game, but it, it's been really hard because, uh, because they're, they're still going with the, the tuned in noise. So I, I'm, th- that's why Thursday against the Celtics, assuming it's now 1700, I really want to see if they still go that route. Do they finally let, you know, go with natural sound? Well, Alex Schiffer of The Athletic, thank you. I want to be able to thank you in person at Barclays Center sometime in the second half of the season. I do too. I love talking to you, and uh, I hope to have you on before the playoffs again. That would be awesome. I I always love coming on, Steve. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Alex. I'll talk to you soon. So thank you again, Alex Schiffer of The Athletic. And my apologies for the audio glitches that pockmarked that clip. No idea how that happened. But, you know, despite the sound quality, I do take pride in that the content I give you folks is always A-plus on the City Game Podcast. Anyway, uh, just to do a deeper dive on a couple of things Alex brought up, you know, I do wonder how Nash is going to set up his rotation when and if everyone returns from the All-Star break in good health. We didn't get into Brown too much, but you know, it turns out Alex was correct in his assessment before the season when he came on. You know, He said Brown was going to be an integral part of the team's success. He was right. You know, The last six games, 
Brown is averaging 18 points per game with a shooting split of 67.7-50-79. This guy's confidence is sky high right now, and the team is really responding to his energy. I mean, if this guy is making his threes, how can you take him out of the lineup? You know, he typically guards the opponent's lead playmaker. You know, it's before the Nets do all their switching. Also, you can't ignore the impact he has on the defensive boards. You know, I looked it up. He's 19th in defensive rebounding percentage among the 122 guards who play over 20 minutes a game. Personally, I'd prefer to see Brown remain in the starting five alongside the Nets' three All-Stars and DeAndre Jordan rather than Joe Harris. Forget contract status for a minute. You know, the stretch run has to cement who this team will be come playoff time. Go with what has been proven to work. You know, for folks who didn't hear the previous episode, the Nets are just killing it with the Brown-DJ combination. Plus 9.5 net rating. Meanwhile, the Brown-Green pairing has been a slightly negative proposition. Even on the offensive end, where you know you think Brown and Jordan they're regarded as non-shooters, the Nets average over 121 points per 100 possessions when the two of them are on the court, as opposed to 114.5 with Brown Green. And until opponents figure that out, you don't really need Harris's shooting at the start of games. What that also does is relegate the inconsistent Nets to what they call the Stay Ready Group. And I'm talking about you, Landry Shannon and TLC. And I think Harden's going to be just fine working with a second unit of Harris, Griffin, Green, and either Claxton or Tyler Johnson, depending on the matchup. Now, I'm not ready to predict that's how it's going to go. And I think Nash still views Shannon as a guy he's willing to wait on to see if he can get him going. But you know, really, at this point, the leash has to be shorter. Now, things can change around here, as we all know. Nets let their 10-day contracts on Andre Roberson, Amon Shumpert, and Tyler Cook expire. None of them were listed on the roster on the team's website as I'm recording this. means they now have two open slots. I mean, they could re-sign Roberson to a minimum deal, but maybe they still have eyes on bigger names. Thought Alex had some good insights on that. My preference? Again, you know, think about the teams the Nets will be facing in the playoffs. Obviously, the standings are in flux, but you know, after the first round, to me, the biggest problems they'll face will be defending wings. Think Jimmy Butler on Miami, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on Boston, and Tobias Harris on Philadelphia. Maybe you can put Ben Simmons in that category, too. Now, do the Nets have enough defenders so that they won't need to score 130 points to win a playoff game that's typically slower paced? I guess we'll soon see how Marks views things in the next 30 days or so, with the trade deadline and playoff roster deadlines for buyout candidates coming up. Look, you know, whether you're in the camp that Marks is a genius for setting this all up or believe that he just got lucky that the Knicks were a joke of a franchise when KD and Kyrie wanted to join forces in the New York area. No matter what you believe, you have to admit that the Scola principle has taken full effect under Marx's watch. And with that, 
I'm going to wrap up this episode of the City Game Podcast. Again, thank you very much to Alex Schiffer of The Athletic for giving you folks his take on where the Nets stand coming out of the All-Star break. I should be back sometime next week, break down the first few games of the second half of the season. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading these episodes. Please feel free to also post some nice comments on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. So, until next time, I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast.